Welcome to The Writer's Room with me, novelist Charlotte Wood. In each episode of this podcast, I speak with another writer or another artist about their work, how they work and what sustains them through a creative life. Every artist I know eventually comes up against some big, scary questions, like, what's the point? Why write anyway? How can I justify making art in the face of the world's catastrophes? A burning planet, endless cruelty, broken politics. And yet, we know that seeing and reading and watching other people's art has saved us over and over again. It clarifies our thinking, challenges our ideas, and illuminates some of our darkest moments. In this episode, we're cutting through the despair and resistance that often attends the writer's life to talk about how to keep showing up to the desk to make something meaningful, ethical, and beautiful. Today, I am very excited to be speaking with American author Sarah Centillis. Sarah is a writer, a teacher, critical theorist, scholar of religion and author of many books of non-fiction, including Breaking Up with God, A Love Story, and Draw Your Weapons, a devastatingly challenging, moving and completely original meditation on war and art, which won the 2018 Penn Award for Creative Nonfiction. Sarah's essays have appeared in The New York Times, The New Yorker, Oprah Magazine, Ms. Magazine, the LA Review of Books, among many, many others. I first heard Sarah speak in Wellington, New Zealand, and I found myself just completely riveted by everything she had to say. So when I knew Sarah was coming to Australia in 2018, I just made very sure that I got to meet her, and we have stayed in touch since then. Now, as well as being an outstanding writer, Sarah is an incredibly inspiring teacher and mentor to artists of all kinds. I've participated in a couple of Sarah's online workshops and I highly, highly recommend them to any writer or artist who may be listening. Sarah lives and works in Idaho in the USA and today we are speaking online. Sarah, welcome to the Writer's Room podcast. Thank you, Charlotte. I'm so happy to be with you virtually. <laughs> I wish we were in the same room, but this feels pretty good. We'll get in the same room one day again, I'm sure. Now, I want to start by asking you a little about what your writing life looks like at the moment. Can you describe your general kind of working routine for me? I just started a brand new book, writing a brand new book about a week ago. And at the beginning of a project, I feel a lot of resistance. So it's hard for me to go to the computer. I was telling a friend today that it almost feels like I'm the wrong end of a magnet, like I'm repelled by my writing area, something happens. But today I kind of felt things shift and I could see the project in a different way. And um, I felt like I tapped into the source of my creativity and asked for support. And so hopefully what my writing work, my writing daily life will start looking like is um, I write in the morning first thing, um, which is something I encourage all writers to do because I think if we give away our minds um, in, the, in our time before we write, we'll usually never get there. It's um, hard to um, make yourself write when you've already let other people and other needs and other emergencies occupy your brain space. So I try to write first and I try to write for about three to four hours a day before I do anything else. 
And do you have a kind of um, word count or do, do you just go, whatever I do in that three or four hours, or do you have some kind of measure thing or, or is it the hours? I'm not a word count person. I'm a time in the chair person. Um, I'm also a generative writer. So at the beginning of projects, I'll write for three hours straight, whatever comes to my mind. I'm a believer that you have to write a lot of garbage before you get anything good. Um, so I give myself permission to do that. One of the things I've been talking to people I'm coaching about is this idea about how we welcome our ideas. So many people I work with, especially women, decide something's boring or not worth writing about or not good before they put it down on paper, which to me sends a signal to your other ideas like, hey, this place isn't safe. She doesn't like us. She's not welcoming us. So I've been trying to welcome ideas and trust that whatever I write, I can edit it later um, and to try to ride that forward momentum and to show my ideas that I trust them and then I'll honor them on the page. That sounds wonderful. I love that, welcoming your ideas. So has this approach changed between books or across books or have you always sort of known how to go about it in this way? I've always known that's how I should go about it. I'm not sure I've always gone about it that way. (laughs) Draw Your Weapons was such an epic writing experience. It took me 10 years to write. I wrote it as a novel first and then I shattered it and put it back together as nonfiction. It was like working with cut glass, like dragging the ideas out and trying to figure out form. It was hard every step of the way. The content was hard. The writing was hard. Um, I'm super pleased with the outcome. I think it's probably one of the best things I've ever written. And um, I like how clean and spare it is, but there's nothing easy about it. This next book that I just finished that I just sold to Random House a few weeks ago, it was the complete opposite feeling. It was like water. It was easy. I would come to my computer and think, oh, I need to write a chapter about like whatever content was on my mind. And then I'd open my computer, look at the folders I had, and I'd realize I'd already written 20 pages about it that I'd forgotten about. It was like a found object. It's really strange. It was so much easier. Um, it felt like a, a gift. Wow. I love that. I envy that. Um, (laughs) Me too. I never have had that happen before. (laughs) So this beautiful, watery, flowy gorgeousness is that um, how does, you know, why, why are we so resistant then? You're starting a new thing and you haven't got that by the sound of it. No, I don't have that beautiful flowy water gift. I don't know. It's I. Someone told me today that they've been reading a book that I can't remember the name of that said the bigger the resistance, the more important the project. So I'm trying to honor the resistance. And I know at the beginning, the book that I just finished is called Stranger Care. That's the working title right now. And at the beginning of that, I felt resistance too. I think I always feel resistance at the beginning. Um, but I think trusting myself as a writer and trusting uh, whatever ideas flow through me. It's a practice that I have to keep cultivating. And I got a little bit off track because I don't know if this happens to you, but when my manuscript was out for review, when my um, editor, the editor for Draw Your Weapons is named Andy Ward at Random House. And when I knew he was reading it, I could not write. I couldn't write for weeks. I couldn't write. Um, And for me, once I get off track, it's a lot harder to get back on. Yeah, right. Uh, That is extremely familiar and I'm sure it will be familiar to anyone listening. Now, speaking of resistance, um, 
I really wanted to talk to you about this, um, the, the question of why it's important to write. So as you know, in Sydney right now, we are blanketed with horrifically thick bushfire smoke. Australia is covered in fires as a result of climate change. Our country's leaders are still seem to be arguing about whether climate change exists. We have a government that delights in all kinds of human rights abuses, uh, is actively destroying our planet. Um, just last week, our government abolished the Department for the Arts and removed any mention of the word art or artists from the new department where we have been um, moved into a department of transport. Um, so... <laughs> That's funny if it's not terrible. That's horrible. Yeah, it's, um, you know, you can probably understand why every creative person really that I know is really feeling quite a deep despair. Um, we, uh, not only about our country and our culture, but about how to maintain this sense of creative purpose in the face of all this kind of um, kind of moral catastrophe, really, because... At times like this, it's really easy to, for us to feel that, you know, writing a novel or painting a canvas is kind of trivial in comparison to fighting a fire or chaining yourself to a tree. Um, and I know you've spoken about this at length, uh, particularly, you know, your own feelings after the Trump election. So what are your conclusions about why it is important for us to keep making art um, I had to ask myself those same questions when Trump was elected. I mean, your description of what's happening in Australia sounds so similar to what's going on in the United States. We haven't abolished um, art yet, but I could see it happening. And I think the move to abolish the Department of Art is a sign of how powerful art and creativity really is. You don't abolish something that can't challenge the status quo. There's no need to get, need to get rid of something that doesn't do anything. Um, so when Trump was elected, I had to ask myself those same questions. And I've come down on the side that there is really no more urgent task than art making. For me, being creative and making something new, whether you're making a cup or a garden or a loaf of bread or a sentence or a painting or a drawing or a statue, when you do that, you're exercising the muscles that we need to help make a better world. For me, making a better world is a creative act and it's something that we do together. We fight injustice and racism and environmental destruction together. And in order to be able to do that, we have to imagine a better world. And that muscle of imagination, that muscle of creativity is what we practice as artists. I think all art making is political. It doesn't matter if your content is political or not. When you make something new, when you introduce something new into the world, you're introducing what Elaine Scarry calls a fragment of world alteration. And she says that what we're each able to do individually as artists shows us what would be possible should we do that creative activity together, which would be the total reinvention of the world. So for me now, I think art making is one of the most urgent tasks we can be doing because it's how we exercise our capacity to reinvent the world, to make something new that's more just, more life-giving for more beings uh, that we share the planet with. Can I go back to your point just then? Um, you know, I find I have periods of absolutely believing everything you've just said really fervently. And then I have days where I think, oh, you're kidding yourself. You know, this is sort of clutching at straws. Do you 
do you have those days of, of doubting this um, kind of mission that you've just described? And on those days, if you do have them, what do you do? What are your strategies for kind of overcoming that um, resistance to the idea that making any art is important? I guess I don't have resistance to the idea that making art is important, but I have resistance to the actual making of art. <laughs> um, and I get, I feel despair and I feel depressed and I feel the pointlessness of it. And I feel, um, you know, when you think about of landscape burning and you think about the animals that are affected by that and the plants that are affected by that, and you think about one helpless animal that's, trapped because of human behavior. It's overwhelming. Um, and my strategies for that are to make. That's the actually the only thing that helps me feel better in that situation is to write a sentence or make dinner or do something that introduces something new to the world. That That's the only antidote for me. So, you know, I, I said a lot of grand things about the difference I think art can make, but I know that it makes a difference for me. And I know that despair only serves fascism or the dominant paradigm or the people in power. Like they win if I can't act, if I can't feel joy, if I can't spend time with the people I love, if I can't do activism in my community. Um, so that's, I feel like that's what keeps me going. I've also had a recent realization um, that's just come to me this year that my teaching and my writing and my activism are all animated by the same um, fire. I hate to use fire. I shouldn't use a fire metaphor with talking no, to an fire is, <laughs> fire is beautiful when, when it's not your house burning down. Yeah, but by the, same, by the same set of questions and by the same desire to make the world a better place. That, that's why I write. That's why I teach people to center creativity in their own lives. And that's why I'm an activist in my own community is that I think it's possible for humans to make a different world. And I think activism, I think teaching, and I think writing all do that. Um, and it's the making of something new that's the only way that I can't just lie down on the ground and give up. Oh, you're so inspiring, Sarah. I think maybe I just need to talk to you like every 10 minutes for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could talk to you every 10 minutes that sounds great <laughs> um, uh, so who are the people you turn to then for this um, sorry I just want to go back to one thing you said then that I love that you made very clear that uh, making art isn't um, doesn't mean that you don't do those other things activism and um, connecting with your community and all of that and you know I've certainly had uh, writing students say to me, um, you know, how can I be doing this so-called work when, you know, species are becoming extinct all the time, etc. Um, and my answer to them, and I guess, you know, maybe I need to remember this for myself, is that, um, you know, you can do both of those things. You don't have to do one or the other. And that for me, like you, making art makes me a more sane person, a happier person, um, a more connected person. And if I'm not sane and happy and connected, I can't be um, 
useful in any other parts of my life. So thank you for um, making that clear. I, I just remember that you um, told me once that during your trip to Australia, somebody at a, um, at a book event asked you, why don't you do something useful like dig a ditch? <laughs> what a proud <laughs> moment for Australians. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, you talk about art as a way to, quote, trouble certainty. Can you talk about what that means and why it's important? Yes. Well, I'm a theologian by training. I studied religion and theology for like a decade in graduate school. I thought I was going to be an Episcopal priest. And then I realized I didn't believe in God, which turns out is a requirement for that job. <laughs> so, But I love to study theology. And the reason that I love it is because I think... Um, at its best, theology is studying the most uncertain object or subject that we know, which is God, this idea of something bigger than anything humans can talk about, something beyond the limits of our understanding, beyond the limits of our imaginations. And for me, that's an ethical practice to be engaged in trying to understand something that must always remain outside your understanding. And I had a teacher named Gordon Kaufman um, who's a theologian and a Mennonite, and he used to say that um, the most ethical thing human be a human person can say is, I might be wrong. And he said, that doesn't mean you can't stake your life on what you believe, but it does mean you can't kill anyone over it. So I've tried to think about that idea of transcendence as an ethical thing, and that um, not just God is transcendent, but every single being, every single rock, every single object, every single other person, every single animal, there's something in that being that's beyond what we can understand, beyond what we can put on the page, beyond what we can paint. And for me, that reminder that there's always something more to the other is how you trouble certainty. And if you can trouble certainty, then I think you're lowering the chances that you're going to go to war because war is based on certainty. You decide you know who the enemy is, what they've done wrong, and what the right response is. But if you can always trouble your worldview and remember that what you think you know is um, you know, limited by your own biases and prejudices, then I think that will help us behave more ethically with one another. Thank you. Again, this is just such a beautiful balm to our... Um, smoky souls here at the moment. Okay, so I want to talk about who are the people that you sort of gather around you for inspiration and connectedness and support. Where do you find your creative community and who are the people who keep you going? Well, I've put myself in Idaho in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so, you know, um, I was really worried when I moved here that I'm, I live in a mountain town for people who don't know um, what Idaho is like. I live in a beautiful valley surrounded by mountains with rivers and uh, beautiful skies and places to explore. And the thing that feeds my creativity is being in that landscape. Um, there's something, when Trump was elected, I used to like to go on hikes and look around and be like, that tree doesn't know Trump is president. That rock doesn't know Trump is president. The sky doesn't know Trump is president. They might be affected by his presidency, but there's something really uh, humbling and uh, relativizing and perspective giving about being outside. When people, when I would tell people I didn't believe in God anymore, they would say a lot of times to me, well, don't you need the sense of something bigger than you? 
And I always said to them, have you been outside? Have you looked at the, at the sky? Have you counted the stars? I mean, there, it's the universe is bigger than us. Um, and that for me is important. I also, um, my, my book, Stranger Care, is about the becoming a foster parent and about the grief that accompanied um, that and the joy that accompanied welcoming an infant uh, home into our home um, and loving a stranger. Um, but in that grief, I also developed a really rich and vibrant network of friends in my community. And they are the people that help me keep going when I feel despair, whether that's personal despair or political despair. I have a big group of feminist women that I spend a lot of time with, and that's a huge inspiration to me. And the other thing I do is I read. I read, 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 read as much as I can read. And um, that helps me be a better writer and a better person. Um, how important do you think it is for um, artists in one art form to look to other art forms? So, you know, as a writer, I'm often looking at visual art or, or um, I guess visual art for me is the really big one, but, um, but also music and theatre and dance and stuff. How important is it, do you think, for, for artists to get this kind of cross-fertilisation? I think it's the most important thing. I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I got to teach at an art school when I lived in Portland and I worked with painters and sculptors and visual artists of all kinds, not writers, um, mostly visual artists. And that made me such a better writer <laughs> to be exposed to visual art. Um, and it's where I feel solace and where I get inspired and where I remember why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, it's also connected to that idea of troubling certainty. I think Visual art, even more than writing, uh, strikes me as what reminds us that the world is made and can be remade. And when I hear painters talk about their work, painting in, in particular, and the decisions they make about medium and framing and subject matter and perspective, I feel like they are so intentional about remembering that what they're creating is a made object and they're accountable for it. And I also think they ask us to see things more carefully, to look more carefully, to look slowly. And I think the practice of careful looking is something that we've lost, like the practice of careful listening. I think storytelling reminds us about careful listening, but visual art reminds us about careful looking. And so many forms of oppression, racism, sexism, nationalism, war, are based on misseeing the world around us. Um, so for me, visual art reminds me and helps me practice what it means to look at something that I'm never going to quite understand and how to let that being exist outside of me. I think um, art is amazing for that. Something you alluded to right at the start when you said you, you uh, write first thing in the morning because otherwise you, you, know, you can start to get taken away uh, by the demands of the world. You know, another thing that I think can often erode an, an artist's sense of purpose is the need to to do this stuff in the world, like make money, um, do all the things we need to do for our, in our households and our families and so on. So how do you protect the art-making part of yourself from sabotage by um, all these other, you know, needs and requirements? Sabotage is such a good word. I mean, I, you know, I, 
I don't make a lot of money from my writing yet. Someday I will. This is my this is my hope. But I have to hustle. You know, I, I do teaching, I lead workshops, I do one-on-one coaching. And what makes me feel relaxed about that is I'm I can tell I'm becoming a better writer as I help other people center creativity. When I see what they struggle with, it helps me not struggle with that. And I'm able to offer kind of medicine um, and balm for that. But it's an ongoing struggle to say, no, I choose to do this. I choose to do this now. And I choose to believe in my writing, even when there's so many other demands on my time. Um, And I think that's something that most artists face, but it's definitely something I face a lot. Um, I have a lot of mantras that I say to myself, (laughs) you know, about uh, relaxing and trying not to panic um, and trusting that um, resources are on their way and that I'm okay. And do you have like practical sort of things to protect that space, like in your workspace or the way you organise your days or that kind of stuff? Are there kind of, um, I don't know how to describe what I'm asking, but, you know, kind of rules and routines in a a, um, logistical kind of sense that help you? Yes, I stay off the internet. Um, I don't check my email until I set a certain time. I'm kind of an email junkie, even though there's not much useful in my email. <laughs> um, I try to stay off social media. Uh, I don't. That was that idea I was trying to talk about in the beginning of of what we let occupy our minds or what we give our creative energies towards. I find if I check my email before I write, then I have like all this sense of emergency of things that I need to do or people want me to do or want me to think about. Um, so I can only write if I shut all of that off um, for those certain hours. Um, I have a client that I work with who is a mother to twins, she works full time, and she gets up every morning and writes at five in the morning. So I also think of her, I'm like, I don't have anything to complain about. I'm a full time writer, you know, I'm making it work. Like, just put your butt in the chair and turn everything else off and and pay attention to what wants to come forward. Oh, the other thing I do, actually, this is a weird thing. I make myself a big giant frittata on Saturday, on, on the weekend, on Sundays, that I eat all week long. And there's something about having a breakfast made in advance um, that sets my writing week off right. It sounds stupid, but that is like makes a huge difference to be able to have something prepared that's actually good and feels good in my body and I don't have to do anything but warm it up. I think that is such a terrific um, thing to mention. And uh, I know that I've talked to you about these things I run called surges, which are like a a four-day intensive at-home retreat. And I know you're about to start um, doing something like that. And I can't wait to learn more about it and hopefully participate. Um, And But one of the things I recommend people do is cook for the the week ahead. Or A, get somebody else to cook or B, cook in advance because it is kind of amazing how much time and distraction the getting of food, especially if you like to eat like me, um, takes, you know, away from your work. So I love that. I also have a vision of you, um, you know, if you're ever being presented with frittata at someone else's house, sort of going into Pavlovian, uh, <laughs> <laughs> madly scribbling at their dining table. I have to leave. I have to leave. I have to go to my computer. Yeah, you, you told me about the, I mean, your writing retreat inspired my virtual writing retreat and the reminder that it's important to have people get their food set up. And I also experienced that at a writing residency here called um, Hedgebrook, which you should do sometime. It's for women. 
Um, you would love I've heard it. about that. Oh, you would love it. They give you a little cabin in the woods and everything about your life there is set up to support your writing. Um, and that was a profound experience for me. Like the way the room is situated, the way, the way you sleep is situated. And then, um, they, you take home at night with you, everything that you need for the morning for breakfast, they deliver to your door a basket for lunch. And then all you have to do is show up at this farm table for dinner. And it's this idea of radical hospitality. And I think that's important for creative people to offer to themselves. Like, what does it mean to be radically hospitable to, to me and to my art making and to the people that I encounter in my life whose creativity I also want to support? So that idea of radical hospitality is something that I learned at Hedgebrook and I try to practice um, in my own creative life and help the people I work with practice in theirs too. I so want to go there. I'm, I'm... You should go. I'll, write, I'll tell them about you. <laughs> I don't have any. I don't have any poll there, but you should. You should definitely apply. It's incredible. Thank you, Sarah. Um, uh, do you go away with people on you know your own kind of retreats? Uh, do you ever do that with your creative friends? I have not done that. I've gone to writing retreats. I mean, to residencies. I did Hedgebrook, and I did another one called Yado. That's in upstate New York. And they were transformative for me both times. So I probably should design my own. I'm kind of a private writer these days. I don't know if this has happened to you as you've written more books. I used to write and need a lot of people to give me feedback and to check in with them about what they thought. Like, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Now I don't. I just only need myself um, until it's finished. And I think there's something really important about writing privately. Um, but I'd like to write privately with other people, <laughs> but I don't want to talk about what we're writing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I actually do go away with, um, a couple of people quite frequently, but it's, um, it's exactly that kind of, um, I would call it solitude in company in a weird way, like in working incredibly hard privately and sharing stuff if you want, but not, not workshopping or anything like that. Just, working and then talking about art in the evenings. It's kind of nice. I want to um, come. Can I come? Yes, please come. <laughs> yeah, just get I on I basically that wrote another book just so Australia would invite me back. I, <laughs> I hope that they will. <laughs> well, look, on behalf of our art-loving government, I would like to invite you right now. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, Sarah, we are kind of coming up to the end of this chat, but I would love to finish... Uh, by hearing you talk about, if you don't mind, your four questions exercise, because I found that so inspiring and energizing. And I think, you know, for people listening um, at the start of a new year, it could be just so lovely to hear you just, you know, summarizing as much as you want about that. I know it's your kind of intellectual property, so I don't want to um, impinge on that, but, but I just found it so exciting that um, I think people should know about it. Great. It's, it's not my intellectual property, so I'm happy to share it. Um, and I'm also going to be offering a free four questions workshop in January so people can look for that. Um, just free to show up. It will be one hour. And I learned um, the questions from my friend Amy Walsh, who's a, a visual artist, and she learned it from a group called No Limits for Women in the Arts. And the idea was that little girls don't often get asked what their biggest vision is for their lives. Um, 
So they develop these four questions and they encourage you to ask it with friends. And so Amy and I, when I was in graduate school, we would do these questions every month and practice it over and over and then read it to the other person as a kind of accountability and reflection and mirror to remind you what you'd been writing the, the month before and to see how you'd moved on that. So these are the four questions. So the first question is, with no limits of any kind, financial, emotional, temporal, physical, any kind of limit you can think of, no limits of any kind, what's your biggest vision for your life as an artist or as whatever it is that you want to do in the world? Uh, the second question is, what do you need to do today, tomorrow, this week, this month, this year to move toward that vision? The third question is, what makes you stop? Which I think is such a powerful question because we all get stopped by stories we tell ourselves or life circumstances or our saboteurs or whatever it is. And the fourth question is, who or what do you need to surround yourself with to make sure you don't stop? So those are the four questions and I encourage you to do them with, with your friends and collaborators and creative partners. They're really, really powerful. Do you do them often for yourself? I do. I do them fairly regularly for myself. Um, and it's been really amazing to notice that, you know, I've been doing them since I was about 24. I think I'm, how old am I now? I'm 46. And so for how many years is that? 22? <laughs> 22 <laughs> years? I don't do numbers. <laughs> Fuzzy math. Um, and I'm living my biggest vision, you know? So it's, I think it used to feel so radical because I spent a lot of time doing things that I didn't really mean to be doing, like becoming a priest or um, and it being in a doctoral program that wasn't a great fit for me or whatever, on and on and on. And now I'm, I'm actually leading the life I want to lead. And so the, the big vision is a good reminder that helps me make these smaller adjustments to move toward, um, to line up my inner life and my outer life. Yeah, it's so rare that we um, even give ourselves permission to even imagine not having any limits. You know, mm -hmm. I think there's a part of many of us that goes, well, there's no point in doing that because, of course, I have to make money and, of course, I have to, you know, look after my family. So, but there is something that kind of moves, I think, <clears throat> when when you just write that stuff down, pretend you have no limits. It's kind of, mm -hmm. there's something uh, kind of magical about it, I think. So I would also recommend that everyone have a go at that and just see how it makes you feel. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Sarah, we have to finish now, but really thank you so, so much for sharing your thoughts with me today. Um, I would love to talk to you again sometime for the podcast, please, maybe. Please, please. Uh, and for everyone listening, you can find out more about Sarah and her work and her workshops and her, um, her new uh, retreat and her four questions and also her magnificent, magnificent books uh, at www.sarahcentilles.com. And, of course, I'll put links on my webpage and social media and stuff um, to Sarah's work. Sarah, it's been a joy and um, I hope we talk again soon. Me too. It was such a gift to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this. That's it for this episode. You can find details of our conversation today on the podcast webpage. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time on The Writer's Room with Charlotte Wood.